So we're finishing off the book of Esther this week, and uh, we get to do so by looking at uh, the last couple chapters, and we'll get there in a second. Um, but we, we do this um, usually once a year where we go through a book of the Bible or a person from the Bible, and we kind of just go through their life and pick up some of the highlights. And so this year we're going through Esther, which is both a person and a book. Um, but the interesting thing about the book of Esther is that it's not really about Esther. It's about something else, which we'll get on in just a minute here. So when you open up the book of Esther, what you realize is that the context, the setting for the book of Esther is about 480 B.C. And this is when the Persian Empire owned about 44% of the world population. So a massive empire almost having a monopoly on mankind. And in chapter 1, we saw that the king of Persia, Xerxes, decided to show everyone just how powerful this empire was. And so um, across all of his 127 provinces, Xerxes decided to pick all the rulers, all the important people, and to throw a party for them, to throw a celebration that lasted six months. A six-month celebration. And that wasn't long enough. He decided to tack on another week after that. So six months and one week of celebration and by the end of it all, this, this, this uh, celebration is what really causes the tension for the book of Esther and why, why we even have a story about this, this woman named Esther. But what's interesting is that while the book of Esther starts with a celebration, it also ends with a celebration. You could go as far to say as that the book of Esther isn't so much about Esther as the book of Esther is really just about the backdrop for why this celebration continues. And this celebration at the end, it's not a six-month thing. It's not a one-year thing. The celebration started at the end of Esther continues to this day, which makes me want to pause. All of us love a good celebration, right? Our idea of good might be different because you introverts out there, your idea of celebrating is a little bit different than the extrovert sitting next to you. Uh, but all of us would love to hear this. When we share some news with our BFF, we want to hear back, this calls for celebration. We all love to hear that, right? Um, and so this idea of celebration, you know, we, we kind of like it. And to differing degrees, we have our idea of what a good one is. But wouldn't it be amazing if there was your kind of celebration that never ended. And the appeal to that is this. I looked up the definition of what celebrate means. Celebrate means to honor an occasion by festivities, sounds nice, or by deviating from the routine. And I believe that's the real lure of celebrations. You get to deviate from routine, right? On what other day of the year would someone put live fire on a dessert and put it in front of you to celebrate you. That's deviating from the routine. And sometimes we, we use the excuse of, well, it's a party. I can do some things I wouldn't normally do. Or it's Halloween. I can be a little crazier than normal, right? We deviate from routine. And we kind of like that, where it's kind of this free zone where we can do things a little bit differently. Um, and th where I'm going with this is that this deviation from routine is absolutely essential to your life. Celebrations are things that are absolutely important, and they're important to do intentionally. And there's two reasons why. 
Celebrating, this is number one on your sheet, celebrating, uh, what you celebrate defines you and it aligns you. In other words, if you showed me the last 12 months of your calendar and I saw all the dates where you went to a party or you celebrated something, I would know a lot about you. I would know if you got a raise. I would know if you changed jobs. I would know uh, the important people in your life. I would know your religion, probably. Um, I would know all sorts of things about you. What you celebrate defines you. What you see worth deviating from the norm says a lot about what brings joy and happiness to your heart. So what you celebrate, it's totally important. And it also aligns you. And maybe you've seen this, whether it was from your family of origin or maybe when you walked into a new career or a new office environment, you noticed that they celebrated kind of weird things. Like, why are they ringing that bell over there? I don't get it. But pretty soon you found your behavior being shaped so that they would ring the bell for you. What you celebrate defines you, and also what you celebrate aligns you. And so the celebration is absolutely essential. But, but, but what happens for most of us is that we lose the desire or the ability to celebrate. What happens then? Well, when you lose the ability to celebrate, you forget who you are and you forget where you're going. Here's what happens. The call to celebrate can be silenced. And there's four things from your past that are trying to silence the call to celebrate. Four things. And as we get into these four things, this is going to help us dig into this last part of Esther, and we'll see how God um, speaks into this for us. But there's four things from your past that want to silence the celebrations of today. Number one, this is most common for all of us, the the decisions you've made in the past will take away your desire or perhaps your ability to celebrate today. Perhaps it was a financial decision. And as you think back at that decision you make, you think to yourself, why did I do that? I don't know if I'll ever have a financial ground like I could if I had not made that decision. Or that financial thing you did, just it it changed your life forever. And now as you think of money, you're like, oh, I'll never be happy about that again. I'll never celebrate anything financially related. Or maybe it was a sexual decision that you made and perhaps it, devalued you and the other person. And now every time you think about that relationship, you think to yourself, well, how can I possibly celebrate any other relationship? Or maybe it was a, a more of just a relational thing where maybe you burned a bridge that should still be alive today. And now it's like you walk on eggshells. You're careful. to. You don't want to celebrate the relationships you have with people. So this is a huge one for all of us. We think of these decisions in the past, and when we replay them in our minds, it takes from us the desire or perhaps even the ability to celebrate. There's another thing from your past that tries to take that away, the events of your past. All of us in this room can think back to that moment when something happened that changed the way we see the world. You remember what you were doing when you heard the news that something had happened. And from that moment on, every time you replay that moment, it just takes out of you the joy, the happiness that wants to turn into celebration. The third thing is sometimes there's people. People that have done things to us or people that we've done things to. 
And as we replay that in our minds over and over again, we start to look skeptically at people in our lives and especially at ourselves. And we think, well, why in the world should I celebrate anything? And then lastly here, it's the circumstances in life. For some of us, it was a season of life where there was this searching, this restlessness. Uh, Maybe it was a season of illness. Maybe it was a season of unemployment. Maybe it was a season of uh, family issues. And, And as you think back and replay that season of your life, you come to one conclusion. God wasn't there. I don't know where he was, but he was not there for me. And as you think through that over and over again, it just takes from you any joy and especially any celebration that you might have today. Now, as you think about all those those gloomy things, okay, we're starting gloomy. We'll get happy soon. As you think of those gloomy things, understand that you're not alone. All of us have these things from from our past that accumulate and, and and replay in our minds, and they want to take your celebration away. Now, just think of this. If that happens, you'll lose sight of who you are and where you're going because what you celebrate defines you and aligns you. Now, as we get, let's let's take this into the book of Esther. When you go back to 480 BC, you see the Jewish people have gone through their fair share of these four things. If you think you have it bad, just listen to, to some of the things that they were going through. So the Jewish people in general, they could all look back to this decision where they abandoned God. And it wasn't this subtle thing either. It was this continual thing where they said, God, we don't really care about you. We'd rather have the gods of these other countries. We'd rather have them. And they abandoned God. And they think back to that decision and they say, how foolish was that? Why did we do that? But it led to an event where God abandoned them. God said, fine, if you love these other nations so much, I'm just going to take away your nation and, and give you to theirs. And so the Babylonians came in, destroyed them. The Assyrians came in, destroyed them. And, and finally, the Persians came in and destroyed the, the Babylonians. Uh, it's a long story. But anyway, they were dispersed, and they look back at these events, and they say, man, how can we find any joy? Our homeland destroyed. Our temple is no longer built. So all these events would stick in their mind and take away the joy and the celebration. Then there's people, as we get to 480 BC, first of all, there's the king of Persia, Xerxes, who has control over them. And on top of that, there's this guy named Haman, who's the prime minister of Persia. And he has devised a way, because he was anti-Semitic, he devised a way for all the Jews to face a holocaust on one day in particular. It was going to be open season on any Jew anywhere, And you could basically kill them and take all their stuff, and it would be perfectly legal. Imagine that happening in a country where an entire ethnic group, where it was basically stated, you can kill anyone from this ethnic group and take their stuff. No one will arrest you for it. It'll be completely open for one day. And so that's what the people in 480 BC were dealing with. And then the circumstances. They were facing a season that was going to have an abrupt end. They were targeted for death. And perhaps the worst thing is knowing the day you will die. You think there was much celebrating going on in their hearts, in their minds, in their lives. But what we see in the book of Esther, 
is that before any of this took place, God devised a plan to rescue them. God started raising up a deliverer for the people before they even knew they needed deliverance. And through this person, Esther, this orphan Jewish girl, God raised her up to become queen of Persia so that she could change the decisions, the events, the circumstances, the people. She showed the people that though they had abandoned God, God had not abandoned them that he was working behind everything for them. And she, through, through her influence, she changed events where now there was a different... I'll go back a little bit, Dean. So she was working on uh, some different events where now there were no longer this, this Holocaust facing them. But now, through, through Esther's help, they actually had the right and the, the ability to mobilize and defend themselves. She changed the people where she changed the heart of Xerxes to to protect the Jewish people. And she changed permanently the heart of Haman. If you were here last week, he was put to death. And so the big enemy of the Jews is now gone. And then finally, the circumstances. The Jews have a day where they can defend themselves and they can overcome their enemies. So what we're going to do as we finish up, I know that's a lot of history, but as we finish up this book of Esther, I just want to show you how God can change all these things, even for you, to restore the reason and the ability to celebrate. Here's how we do it. Back to verse uh, 17. This is Esther chapter 8. So everywhere, this is just the word is getting out, everywhere the edict of the king came, the edict that Jews... You can now assemble, bear arms, and defend yourselves on this day when you were targeted to be killed. So the edict goes out that they can assemble. There was joy and gladness among the Jews with, I I love this, feasting and celebrating. You remember that time in high school when you got dumped? Or you dumped them? No, I was the only one? Okay. (laughs) But there was like a few days where I just, I didn't feel like eating. I, I was like, oh, the world is coming to an end. You know, everything is worse when you're a teenager. But, you know, there, you just don't eat right when things aren't right in your life. But immediately, when they hear the word that there's this edict that they can defend themselves, they have a feast. They're feeling great. And they're celebrating. They're, they're deviating from the norm to make a big deal about this event. Because, and here's the cool thing, and many people of other nationalities became Jews because they saw what was going on. They, 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 the fear of the Jews had seized them. Now, here's the thing. The Jews didn't sit down and say to themselves, okay, we need more numbers to help us defend ourselves. So let's make an evangelism plan to bring more people in so that we can... No, they didn't have this plan. They just were celebrating the news that their death had been taken away. They were celebrating life. And people, they saw this change. They were seized in their hearts and they said, wow, we want to learn more about your God. We want to be on your side. And so people became Jews. And if you were a guy back then, it was not an easy thing to become a Jew. I'll leave it at that. But the people became Jews because they saw what was happening in their lives. Now, I want to pause right here because get this. They're feasting and they're celebrating, but the enemy is still before them. The day of the edict where the people could kill the Jews, that, that edict was very much alive. They were still going to face enemies when that big day would come. But they decided to feast and celebrate 
when the enemy was still in front of them. And I want to ask you real quickly, how good are you at feasting and celebrating while you're in the waiting? While you're still face-to-face with the enemy, are you celebrating or are you more just waiting? And here's where I find some conviction in me, and maybe you find some conviction in you, but when I'm face-to-face with an enemy, whether it's a temptation or a person or whatever it is, there is so much pressure to say, well, hold on. I'm going to hold off celebrating God's deliverance until I actually get there. But these people didn't wait. They celebrated in the waiting. And I'm going to tell you why you can, but this is not easy, and this is going to convict us in this room. Here's number two on your sheet. If God is behind everything, nothing should stop your celebration. If God really was behind everything in that, in that season of unemployment or in that season of illness, if he really was still in control and behind everything, that shouldn't have affected your celebration. You should still find joy. You should still find peace. But oftentimes that's really difficult for us, isn't it? Sometimes we want to see how God is behind everything before we celebrate that he is. And we'll talk about that more towards the end. But what we're going to see next as we wrap up this book of Esther, we're going to see how God takes this, which is on us. This is on you. But he's actually going to take the reason for our celebration and he's going to put it somewhere else. The good news is that you don't have to find him behind everything, in order to celebrate what he's doing. The last part here illustrates that. So the big day comes. The Jews, this is just in Susa, the capital city of Persia. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and, it, and, they, did not, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And so the big day came, the Jews armed themselves, assembled, and they went to town in the town, right? They destroyed their enemies and 500 people were killed. And so that day, Esther goes up to King Xerxes as he's hearing the numbers come in. And the king is like, Esther, it sounds like you're doing pretty good out there. Why are you here? What do you need? And she said, today was good. We killed 500 people who hated us and who wanted us dead. But there are still some other people out there. We need another day to keep doing this. And so the King, King Xerxes said, fine, you can have another day here in the citadel of Susa to attack your enemies and no one will arrest you for it. So what happens next is, so the Jews in Susa came together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar, which by the way is about March for our calendar. And they put to death in Susa 300 more men, and they, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So 500 and 300, so 900 men that they put to death. my test to see how well I'm preaching. But here's the interesting thing. They did not put their hands on the plunder. You have to wonder, well, why is that detail in there? I'll bring that up in just a minute. So these two uh, parts here, this was just in Susa, right? There's 127 provinces out there where stuff is happening. So you wonder, well, what's happening out there? And the book of Esther records that next. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews throughout the kingdom assembled in their local areas to protect themselves and to get relief from their enemies. 
So what that tells me is that this wasn't just people deciding, oh, I guess we'll just kill Jews because it's kill Jew day. No, these were enemies of the Jews, people who hated them for whatever reason. And now this day gave them an opportunity to defend themselves and get relief from this continual persecution of living in Persia. So across the kingdom, they killed 75,000 of them. Here's this detail again. But did not take their plunder. And you have to wonder, why is that detail in there? Well, the king of Xerxes, through his, King Xerxes, through his edict, had actually given them permission to kill any man, and behind that man, any woman, and any child who stood against them. And after doing so, after destroying each man, woman, and child, there would be no need for any plunder to stay in that house, right? If you kill a family, you can just take their stuff because no one else is going to use it. But there's this detail in here where the Jews did not take the plunder. And you have to ask, well, why? Well, the answer is because there were people left behind who needed it. While these Jews came face to face with their enemies and and killed the men who were standing against them, they did not go so far as to exterminate each woman and each child who belonged to that man. Instead, they showed restraint and wisdom. And here's a quick application for you. I, I want you to picture, maybe there's an enemy that you've had in your mind throughout this message, someone or something or a temptation or a struggle that's before you. You know what? Someday the table will turn, and maybe it will be tomorrow. Maybe the tables will turn, and you'll have the upper hand against this person who's treated you so poorly or who has taken from you. You might have the upper hand, and in that moment, you'll have to choose, decide what you will do. And I urge you, both from the historical context of Esther and also something Jesus said, do not plunder them. Jesus gave specific instruction when it comes to your enemies, pray for them, love them, feed them, give them water. If you get the tables turned, do not take matters into your own hands, but rather rather demonstrate in your heart that God is in control. And that is so hard to do until you come to grips with this final truth that we're going to get into here. You can leave things in God's hands when you understand one thing, which is going to come out in just a minute here. So Mordecai, the the guardian of Esther, kind of one of the main characters. And by the way, by chapter 9, Mordecai went from sitting at the king's gate to now he's the prime minister of Persia. You have to read the story at home. I I can't tell you all the details. But uh, he sent out letters to all the Jews throughout the entire Persian empire to tell them what happened. Hey guys, this is what we accomplished on one day. We have relief from our enemies. And so he told them to celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar. Celebrate annually. So all of us naturally, like we celebrate in the moment. Like when your football team scores, you go, woohoo, right? There's this moment of excitement. But for, for a lot of us, there's that moment quickly fades and it's not like this regular thing. That's to be expected because let's just take that football model a little bit further. So let's say you're a Vikings fan. You celebrated a lot when the Vikings won the Super Bowl. 
If you're a Green Bay Packers fan, you celebrated a lot when your team won the Super Bowl. I did that. It happened. (laughs) But here's the thing. Your celebration ended because unless you're a Patriots fan, someone else is going to win next year, right? Right? Some of you got that. Our celebrations are so often just in the moment, and then they pass, and then they fade. But Mordecai said to all the Jews everywhere, this is such an important thing. It can't just be an in-the-moment thing. This is something that we need to continue to celebrate because what you celebrate defines you, and it aligns you. And this celebration would both define and align the Jewish people for the next 500 years until some shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks at night would be visited by some angels with some very interesting news. What you celebrate defines you and aligns you. So Mordecai said, we need to keep this celebration going. Celebrate the 14th and 15th days of Adar as the time, the the occasion. This is the occasion that we're going to pause and do things differently for. When the Jews got relief from their enemies... And as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and the morning into a day and and soon a generation, a lifetime of celebration. This is the day that God took our death and then he took it away. And they said, we have to celebrate this. We have to. It goes on. So the Jews agreed to this. They agreed to continue the celebration. And I want to encourage you to do the same. Continue the celebration. Don't just let it be a momentary emotional celebration that death has been taken away for you. Continue it. I'm doing what Mordecai had written to them. So a few more details here. We've got to wrap up. Next slide. For Haman had plotted, so this basically is Mordecai saying, this is basically an inscription on a statue. So just picture this as an inscription for everyone to remember. Haman, the one that hated the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. And if you remember from week two, to figure out the day for their destruction, he said, this is too much just for a man to pick. I'm not going to pick the day when an entire race is put to death. He said, I'm going to leave this to chance. So he cast the poor, that is the lot for their ruin and destruction. In today's terms, he cast the dice. He said, this is the day of chance. We'll just see what happens. And therefore, these days of the celebration that were to continue every year were called Purim, from the word poor. So the Jews were basically saying, Haman thought that chance was behind this. Well, we don't believe in chance. We don't believe in luck. We believe that there is a God behind everything. Nothing is outside of his grasp, not even the lots, not even the poor. And so we're going to name this festival Purim, Purim to remember that there is no day of chance when it comes to God. And so to this day, they continue the celebration. So because of what they had seen and because of what had happened to them, the Jews, I love this phrase, they took it on themselves. And, and if you were a Jew at that time, and if you were reading this maybe generations later, this phrase would make you gasp. What did they do? They took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants should observe these two days every year at the time appointed. And the reason this would make them gasp is because every other Jewish custom and every other Jewish uh, celebration had been divinely prescribed by God. 
the Passover, the Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement, all these festivals were things that God prescribed down to the detail how to celebrate them. But this was one different day when the people, out of reaction for what God had done, they said, we're going to take it on ourselves to create a new custom and a new celebration that no one should ever forget. And quick application, we still do this to this day. And in fact, some people might wonder, well, why is it that we have church on Sundays when in the Old Testament, God, God commanded the people to worship him on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. So the people who are at our Saturday service, apparently they're obeying God, but you guys are all sinners, right? No. <laughs> See, what happened was at the early church in the first century, they, they, they noted something extraordinary that happened on a Sunday. And they said, we do not want to forget. Our lives depend on this event. And so after the resurrection of Jesus took place on a Sunday morning, from that moment on, all of his followers said, we want to remember Sunday, not just once a year. We want to do it once a week. Every Sunday, we want to designate as our day to remember what God has done and that death has been defeated. So that's why we worship on Sundays and a few people on Saturday. Last part here. So these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. And and so this would become an annual thing for them. And because I know you guys can't look up Wikipedia on your phones right now, I'll tell you the four ways they celebrate this to this day. And this this is Google. Just Google it when you get home. So there's four ways they celebrate. Number one, they fast in preparation for this feast, in preparation for the celebration. We still do that for Thanksgiving, right? You don't eat breakfast. You don't eat lunch. You're like, I'm going to get filled up tonight. And so you just, you hold off on the food until the big celebration. So that's what they would do for Purim. They would, they would fast. The second thing they would do is, um, as a group, they would read through the entire book of Esther once a year. So for them, the book of Esther, the account of it, it was as familiar to them as the account of Christmas is to Christians today. They would read through the book of Esther. Then there'd be two other things that they would do. It's, it's kind of interesting. Um, they would give food to their friends. It's just a custom. You find your friends, you give them food. I don't know if it's beef jerky or a casserole or a lamb roast. I'm not sure, but they would just give food to their friends. And then the last thing was they would give gifts to the poor. And that's the four ways they would celebrate. Fasting, reading the book of Esther, uh, giving food to friends, and then giving to the poor. And as I, I looked at that and I thought about that, I'm like, that is really interesting. Because Jesus, the day before his death, the last meal he was having with his disciples, he turned to them. And as John records, he looked at his disciples and he said, guys, in reality, you're my followers, you're my servants, you're just doing what I tell you to do. But then he kind of shocked them. He made them gasp with this statement. John 15 says, I no longer call you servants. A servant just follows orders. A servant doesn't understand why. He just does what he's told. You're not called servants. Instead, I have called you my friends. Because I've told you everything that the Father has told me. I call you my friends. And then what did Jesus do with his friends? He took bread, gave thanks, and he gave food to his friends. Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Take and drink. This is my blood shed for you. 
a new covenant I establish. And I want you to celebrate this often. Because what you celebrate will define you and it aligns you. And the more often you celebrate this meal of, of the, the, the Last Supper or communion, you remember what was at stake for Jesus the day he instituted that meal. See, the God behind everything, he's got everything planned, he's got everything organized, but here's where I want to leave you with this series. Esther is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary book because there's so many different details, circumstances, people, events, everything, but it just shows you how God can work behind everything for a common goal. Now, the temptation is to want to go home and go into your life and say, well, since God is behind everything, he must be behind this and behind that. And if I'll confess real quickly. There was a time when like my, my three-year-old, he was just learning to talk and there was a moment when he, when he had this like extraordinary moment of clarity where he spoke like, like where did that come from? And he said, well, he said something like, well, our house won't be here in six months and so what are we going to do? And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Was God trying to tell me my house is going to burn down? And like was God working through the voice of my three-year-old or Maybe you've had weird moments like that where you turn the channel just to hear a phrase and you're like, oh, that just spoke to me. Is God in my TV? Or you hear something in the radio and it's just this phrase, is God in the radio, right? Where is God? And I think we could make ourselves go crazy if we try to look at everything and try to find God behind it. In fact, I'll leave you with this caution. If you are trying to find God behind everything, you will be frustrated and it will leave you a failure because you and I don't have the discernment to know what he's doing and where he's doing it. Yes, he's working behind everything, but we don't have the sight to see what he's doing or why he's doing it. And often it isn't until years later we can look back and think, oh, I kind of get it now. But in the moment, we have no idea And so if you try to do that, if you try to go find God behind everything, it'll leave you frustrated. And if you make your faith depend on that, of trying to discern where God is, your faith will fall. But your faith doesn't have to depend on finding God behind everything. It's better than that. God said, you don't have to worry about everything. There's this one thing. Since God is behind you, Nothing can stop your celebration. That's the one thing that your Father in heaven wants you to know, that he celebrates you. And that he celebrated the day that you first heard this joyous message that he forgave you in Christ. And he's been working on your heart ever since then. He's celebrating you. He's celebrating that he can spend eternity with you. But your Father in heaven wants you to celebrate too. Because what you celebrate defines you and aligns you. Your past is going to work against it. But nothing should stop our celebration if God's behind everything. But it's better than that. You have a God behind you. And so what's worth celebrating is the fact that God's love for you is absolutely certain as certain as the empty grave. And so I pray that this message, as you look through the book of Esther, you can get some hope and some peace knowing God's behind everything, but so much more that you have a God who's behind you.